3: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm Joe Quazala. I am your host, and I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's just how it goes. With me, as always, the skeptic, the voice of the people, it's Kristen Sutterd. Hi, Kristen.
2: Hi, Joe. Five weeks. This how is, are we still doing this?
3: Should be noted, this is the, the fifth week of our pun theme month of Foo Lie, where we have been talking about the Foo Fighters to some degree uh the entire month and just so happens that Foo Lai had five weeks instead of four so uh you know for some maybe Kristen that's not ideal but for others perhaps it's it's the greatest gift of all oh boy Um, let's bring in our guest. I'm so excited to have him. You might know him. He was a longtime writer and performer on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and then the tonight show with Conan O'Brien, then Conan on, on TBS. He now is a writer and performer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, everybody's friend, Brian Stack. Hey Joe. Hey Chris, and thanks for having me.
2: Hello. So happy to have you here.
3: Yeah, very exciting to have you. First thing I always ask our guests because the rock and roll hall of fame is a kind of bizarre institution that people don't really pay much attention to. What is your reference level for the rock and roll hall of fame? Have you seen an induction ceremony on TV? Do you pay any attention to the, the
4: lists that come out annually? I do. I'm always, uh, I don't, I don't think I've seen all of the inductions, but I have definitely seen several of them. And I've always been excited when people I love get inducted, even though I know, some of the bands I love most will never be in there, and I, I know it can get weird and it's very subjective and stuff. I have mixed feelings about it, because on the one hand, I think I'm so glad when great artists get recognized and immortalized like this, but um, I also remember like what Ray Davies said when the Kings got inducted. Did you see what he said? I got to say, that was a long time ago. It was 1990, yeah,
3: it was. so I, I don't think I have.
2: <laughs> I also can't believe that you're about to drop some knowledge that Joe doesn't have because normally he'd be <laughs> like, absolutely. I remember he said uh, the least rock and roll thing <laughs> is an institution um, or whatever.
4: <laughs> yeah, he said it was very close. He goes, he, goes, he goes, it's clear to me tonight that rock and roll has become respectable. And the crowd starts <laughs> to clap and he goes, what a bummer.
0: Yes. <laughs> right.
4: It was like,
2: right you know, on. The
4: idea of, you know, turning it into a respectable thing. But on the other hand, it's great. It's it's weird and it's also great. So I have I have mixed feelings about it as many musicians probably do.
3: Yeah, it uh, and the thing is it conjures a lot of takes opinions, you know, which is what I think is the the lifeblood of this podcast. Yeah, we've
2: made a whole show out of that. <laughs> uh, it seems like, too, you might fall in between our two perspectives. I very much fall toward the, what is the point? Put everybody in. It's not very rock and roll to have a rock and roll institution. And why is it all white men? So, <laughs> very cool have a lot of feelings about that. And Joe celebrates it as a place, forgotten artists to get some love maybe. And, you know, people who we all respect to uh, get their respect.
3: Mm -hmm. It's a celebration of music. And I think that that is always a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I do agree with that. So one of the reasons we have you on this particular show is because this is going to be a Chicago heavy program because we will be reviewing the first episode of the Foo Fighters a docuseries Sonic Highways. And that first episode takes place in Chicago. We have already watched it, so we will be talking about it in a bit. But before that, Chicago comes up a lot on the show because Kristen and I both lived in Chicago doing comedy for a long time, as did you quite proudly. So I wa- I'm curious, you know, I- I'm sure you've talked about Chicago comedy in interviews for hours and hours, but I would like to talk about music in Chicago and kind of what that meant to you and any like memories of seeing live music in Chicago.
4: Oh, I have so many. I, I loved the opportunity to see bands in Chicago. I was lucky enough to be from Chicago originally, like I always admired my friends who moved there to do comedy. I don't know if I would have had the guts to do that, but I hadn't lived in the city until I finished school, really. So uh, when I was in the city, I got to see so many bands. A lot of the best venues were within walking distance of where I lived, like in Wrigleyville and and stuff. So I saw a lot of great bands at the Metro. I remember seeing um, the replacements a few times, like at Aragon Ballroom and... Uh, then I saw their final show in Grant Park in 1991 and seeing the Pogues at the Vic and seeing, you know, all, so many bands at the Metro and seeing Wilco at the Vic and mm-hmm. Sugar at the Riviera and just so many um, amazing shows. It was such a great place. And, you know, you go see a smaller band, maybe at the Double Door or or something like that. But it, it was there were so many. Was
2: Subterranean bands. around at that point?
4: It might have been. I don't I don't think I ever saw anything there. I'm trying to remember when that came in. I left in 97, so you, and you guys are so much younger, so I'm not sure when was, you were there. I was there,
2: well, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago as well. Which suburb are you from? It sounds like you're hesitant to say I'm from the city. <laughs>
4: No, no, I'm from Palatine. Oh, you're from the city? Oh,
2: yeah. No, 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 I'm not. I I recognize someone who is from the suburbs of Chicago and is hesitant to say I'm from (laughs) Chicago because that is what happens. Like you go outside of the city and you just tell everybody, oh, I'm from Chicago. But if there might be someone who asks you what part of the city, then you're like, "Um, I grew up outside of Chicago and then (laughs) I moved to the city after college, which is also what I did. I'm from the Southwest suburbs. I'm from near Joliet, a place called Crest Hill.
4: Oh, nice. My, my wife's from uh, Evergreen Park, and uh, her family lives in Taylos, Park. Oh, now.
2: yeah. I mean, like, the suburban sprawl of beautiful, uh, the Chicagoland area, you know. But, yeah, I grew up in, the, like, my first concert was at the Metro. I, Or, no, it was at the Rosemont, um, Rosemont Horizon.
4: Right. Oh, cool. Uh, what was that?
2: It, it was Oasis. Um. Yeah, I saw. I can't remember if I saw Bush first or Oasis first. It was like in 1994 or something like that. But I saw Oasis at the Rosemont Horizon, and Liam didn't show up, and Noel had to do all the singing. Oh, wow. uh, oh no! And yeah, I. I mean, I saw a lot of like the bigger '90s bands, like when I was. Growing up, but just in Tinley Park, whatever that the world music theater or whatever I saw, Weezer and No Doubt there and stuff like that. I saw a lot of ska bands at the Metro growing up, things like that, but I didn't see any of the cool. I guess I saw Urge Overkill probably at some point.
4: It's funny. I remember Nash Cato from Urge Overkill pulling up in front of the Metro. I was going to see a Lemonhead show and he pulled up in a convertible vintage Cadillac Eldorado dressed like Neil Diamond from the 60s with like a little <laughs> tie and a turtleneck. And he was just such a character. And I I just love, there were so many great local characters like Billy Corgan. Before Smashing Pumpkins got really big, you'd just see him walking around the Metro with really long hair. I saw him at that Lemonhead show too. And But my first concert was, I, I was such a suburban kid with very mainstream taste until I got to college. I saw Van Halen, at the UIC Pavilion, and it was so fun. I still love a lot of the classic rock I grew up with, like The Stones and The Beatles and The Who and Van Halen, but my horizons were expanded so much later on, but I had very sheltered mainstream tastes in high school.
2: I'm trying to, you know, I think actually the first concert that I ever like went to on my own, I can't remember. It was at like a community college somewhere in the suburbs, but it was the Violent Femmes. And that was like the first time I ever crowd surfed or whatever.
4: Oh, that's awesome. I at, like, they opened for the Pogues actually. Uh, oh, hell yeah. It. But that was a fun show. That was at uh, Poplar Creek out in the Burbs.
2: And so you were living in Wrigleyville, something that really, I know we'll get into it when we start talking about the show, but like I... Had no, I I can't imagine Wrigleyville as like a place where I don't know nothing cool is going things on. Things happen <laughs> like like cool, not fratty. I know Cubs fans puking everywhere. That things really happening. Like- that
3: shocked me because uh, yeah, I lived in in Wrigleyville for a summer in like 2008, and the idea of uh, yeah, they talk about it in the show. We 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 can address it right now. The idea of the Cubby Bear being a hub for- Being an underground
2: hub for punk punk rock music. Is one of the most
3: absurd things from my perspective.
2: I'm like, the the Cubby Bear is a place where it's like literally just, it's Van Halen cover bands, you know, five nights a week or it's freaking, you know. That sounds
3: cooler than, yeah. I was just gonna say the Cubby Bear is where a date rape happened.
2: Yeah, it's a very date rapey place. It, I mean, it was it was on the corner. For our listeners who are not familiar with Chicago, the Cubby Bear is literally kitty corner from Wrigley Field, and it also used to be directly across the street from formerly Improv Olympic, now known as IO, now known as probably nothing forever. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> I performed at IO for eight years in uh, the like mid two thousands and it was like Wrigleyville in the two thousands was an absolute nightmare. I mean, it was just girls crying on the curb and holding their
3: high heels (gasps) in their
2: (laughs) hands and like hot pink cubs gear. And Mm -hmm. then just like horrible (laughs) cargo, short dudes, just puking everywhere. And that smell smell all those
3: smells mixing with cologne And the
2: Taco Bell. I mean, I feel feel like a sense memory of the corner.
4: I I totally know what you mean. And it was, I think, moving in that direction when I lived there. I left in 97 to move to New York. But uh, the Cubby Bear, even then, was not a place where I could go see bands. It was already kind of a fratty bar. So I never saw any bands at the Cubby Bear, which is why the episode surprised me, too. There was still, like, some little independent bookstores. There was some... Now it's just... Very, very different. But uh an IO is gone as you know. And yeah, and- well there's almost like a third a third wave now where it's different from what
3: we remember from yeah. the two thousands. Yeah. Because they have cleared a lot of it. There's like a ice skating rink and wow. there's it's it's been oh, developed.
2: Yeah. I have seen that since I've been back
3: because the the IO was demolished, that whole block was demolished so they could put up uh parking lots and uh maybe condos like it's just it's wow. very I don't even know what I'm looking at when I, wow. when I happen
2: to go Mitchell, there now. she just she really she, called she it that one. I can't believe it
4: you sure did she called pretty much everything she's she's always dead on she did she
2: she heralded the end of improv comedy as we know it in Chicago yeah.
4: anyway
3: should we talk about Sonic Highways The the Foo Fighters docuseries, (laughs) which we were surprised to find is not available on HBO Max, which is curious given that it was an HBO show. But turns out some guy uh, uploaded them all to YouTube. So if people want to watch this episode that we're describing, you can find that on YouTube. If you just search Foo Fighters Sonic Highways. Uh, But this is the first episode starts off with, you know, Dave Grohl directed this. Uh, oh God! <laughs> so, which is interesting. Yeah, starts off very moody with you know them driving in the band. It's dark. You see the lights of the of the city mm-hmm. kind of smattering across their very serious faces because the, the Foo Fighters are a very serious band.
2: I <laughs> I cannot. The opening of this was too much for me. It <laughs> I really hate. The self serious, pretentious. I discovered the concept that where you make music has (laughs) an effect on the music you make. I have this theory and I am going to test it out. Me, Dave Grohl, rock and roll genius and philosopher. And you know, it's been 20 (laughs) years and I did this really wild thing. You know, I started this band called the Foo Fighters. And you know, I just, well, it's been 20 years and it's time to really push ourselves and can you believe we're doing it man I'm gonna gonna <laughs> test my hypothesis and I the way that he speaks as though he is some sort of genius thinking of these things for the first goddamn time like you've heard it on every fucking like documentary about any album that was ever made. They're like, oh yeah, we were, you know, we went to the Bahamas or, oh, we like the sound of that album. So we literally used their producer in that studio. It is. This is not like a novel concept that Dave Grohl is introducing to us. And the way that he does it, I think that Fool has made me hate Dave Grohl. <laughs> I used to be very... I felt like he's rock and roll's nice guy. I think that's good. I like that people like him. I like that he is making rock music in a more traditional sense and keeping alternative radio alive or whatever. And he shows up, he plays the game. He's a he's your favorite uncle or whatever. But as I've spent these five damn weeks with him, I have gotten more and more frustrated and I think it's because of the it's that he thinks he's so important. And I've gotten to a point now that I'm like, oh, actually, Dave Grohl kind of sucks. And he takes himself too seriously. And what he should be doing is maybe mentoring. i really gotten on a high horse the other week about how he should be mentoring people and like sharing the resources rather than being like, here's a fifth new way to look at this uh, same old shit. So the opening didn't do it for me, but then we got into the documentary part and I was like, this I really do enjoy.
3: It's interesting. I I don't dislike the premise of this album, but I think you're right in the way it's presented like it's a revelation. I do, uh, the idea of like, we're going to go to a, a different city mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to record one track in each of these important cities to American music and also to the band on a personal level. That is cool. But yeah, the the way it's presented, like it's a it's a genius revelation. Uh, I, w- I wasn't exactly buying it, but Brian, well, what do you I think?
2: Liked learning <laughs> about the producers and stuff too. There, I liked everything except for the voiceover part. Was really yeah. Like anytime right. the voiceover came back in, I could feel my rating, the tomato meter, <laughs> going lower. Uh, sorry, Brian. Yes, what did you think?
4: I, I enjoyed it overall. I see what you mean about the, the overall tone and the fact that it's not a revolutionary idea that the play centers into the music and, and stuff. But I, I, I did enjoy, really enjoy the interviews with like Buddy Guy and uh, Steve Ovini and and Naked Reagan and all that stuff. And um, that was very enjoyable to me. And also just to see some locations, like even to see Wrigley in the background of, mm-hmm. through the window of places, just mm-hmm. my love of Chicago was uh, making me a little proud of this, but... But I, I enjoyed it overall, and I thought it was nice for people to see who may not be familiar with the Chicago music scene or its history, or um, Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and all that stuff, and how the Delta Blues came up and got electrified in Chicago. And
0: mm-hmm. that's
4: all really—I'm so glad that that's being spread around because I don't—I don't know if enough people appreciate all that history. Yeah, but, uh, that's the rock nerd in me talking too, because. Mm-hmm. Like I know a lot of people that found Almost Famous really annoying, and the sincere rock nerd in me responds to the rock nerd who created that movie, you know. Of and course, it's really oh yeah. You know, and, and and I love that Dave Grohl was honest about how he discovered punk. He was a kind of an eyes wearing kid from the suburbs uh, discovering punk through his cousin. And I actually know Jason Narducci, who who is in this. Episode. Oh really? And I, I love that guy and he's so funny and he's such a great guy. Yeah, he played um with Super Chunk and Bob Mold and uh mm-hmm. but he I saw him at the Metro when I saw Bob Mold do a show, a solo show many years ago, and Jason was in a duo called Jason and Allison and they opened for them, and that was my first exposure to Jason. I didn't meet him until years later, but they played Conan and they played the Late Show and with John Worcester, who's also one of the funniest guys mm-hmm. in the world. He yeah. plays drums for Mold. So that was great. So I enjoyed all those aspects of the show.
3: Yeah. Well, let's let's continue. Let's kind of do this moment moment by moment. The Jason Arduci thing is interesting, uh, and we'll get to that because they do not present him as anyone other than Dave Grohl's cousin's friend. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so the the, the background <laughs> on that Brian is uh is helpful cuz I was like, "Well, this guy like he seems like he knows his shit, but he is presented as just an eloquent dude that is uh, peripherally involved." But l- we'll we'll get what to What was the-, the
2: name of their band? It was like Vertigo Revolt and yeah. Jason
4: wrote a play all about the starting of the band that was performed in Chicago and I was really looking forward to seeing it if it came uh if I ever got back to Chicago, Chicago, and it was critically acclaimed. And it's a play about the creation of that band where they were all kids. He where was they like, were
2: kids, yeah. Like,
4: literal, like we talk about bands Children. that
2: start when
3: they were kids, but yes. like literally 10 and 11 years old, like that is... Uh, very very cool and to see them on that on that show uh the the tv show uh I the mean, local show playing was was adorable
2: and the personal we'll get to this yeah so let's get back to the uh fact that they go to chicago in the winter for some reason <laughs>
3: well i think that's meant to visually distinguish it from the other uh cities that they go to is that they can show a but yeah, Many th- th-
2: times during this episode, I wrote down, get these men hats. Like <laughs> they are walking around freezing cold Chicago. It is snowing and they have no hats on. Dave Grohl waiting for the train in snow, no scarf, no hat, rookie move. Taylor at the freaking bean in like basically a North face fleece. <laughs> like, what are you doing? You, you're from California, you've got, you got to layer up my guy.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. You got you would learn that fast living there. <laughs>
0: right. Oh my gosh. Uh,
4: so I thought the, the
3: series or this show, the episode kind of kicked into gear. They go into documentary mode after they have the, introduced yes. the premise, they go into documentary mode and that's great. The, those are the parts that I enjoyed the best. And they give you a fun, extremely abbreviated history of Chicago music showing you, you know, buddy guy, cheap trick at a James naked Ray gun, Chicago, Throwing in Wilco and Gene Krupa, Kanye. That one, that was very fun. I, and I, yeah, I, I loved liked it.
0: it.
3: Yeah, that, that was great. Uh, and then the stuff about getting into the, the blue stuff I thought was really cool with Muddy Waters and specifically Buddy Guy mm-hmm. and the fact that they could talk to Buddy Guy and mm-hmm. they emphasize, you know, the fact that he's like the last living blues legend. But, yeah. He is so cool. <laughs> he is, <Yeah>. just- <laughs> he
4: yeah. is
2: he is like spitting out gems left and right as well, that wind up getting used as lyrics in the song later. But like, he's such an interesting interview and what a cool guy to talk to. Yeah.
4: He's so cool. I remember, I didn't know who he was when I was in college and my friend Tony goes, we gotta go see this buddy guy and Junior Wells are playing and you gotta go. And I'm like, all right. Cause I trusted Tony's opinion. So we went to this little bar, Jake's, in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and um, and it was amazing. And it was Buddy Guy and Junior Wells playing. This was like 85, 86. And uh, I remember two of the guys from REM, Mike Mills and Bill Berry came walking in wow. to watch the show because they were in town recording Life's Rich Pageant. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad I came to this show and I I was such a suburban white boy, you know, that didn't, I didn't, uh, I knew the blues from the blues brothers, to be honest, you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
4: and then I got into muddy waters and Holland wolf and all that stuff later in magic Sam and all this great stuff that, um, I still love, but I would, I early on, I did not know about that stuff at all.
3: Yeah. Buddy guy, his, his story is, is really great. And the fact that, you know, when you think about like the only, the last living blues legend, we interview him. You assume it's going to be like you know an ancient guy that like you're trying to draw stuff out of. But mm-hmm. man, yeah, he's just he's still so sharp and and yeah, funny how and old sweet. Is he
2: in this... He's in his.
3: I mean, it, honestly, when this was because this was uh, twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen, I think, seven yeah. years ago. So he would only would have been in his seventies. So he really wasn't that old. I just think like he was he was plucked and put into that world when he was super young. So he was already younger than a lot of those guys, than like Muddy Waters and the rest of them.
4: Did you see the Stones concert movie, Shine a Light, that Scorsese directed? Mm. I did not. I think maybe I saw some of it. Well, there's an incredible performance that they bring Buddy Guy out, and he does Champagne and Reaper, the old uh, Muddy Waters song. He does that with the Stones. And it's one of those funny things, because I love how the Stones bring out and you know feature these great artists that inspired them. But it is funny when they're on stage with them, when you compare the the delivery of Buddy Guy to Mick Jagger, it, it, as much as I love the Stones, it's just the soulfulness is just off the charts when Buddy Guy's singing his verses. And um, it's the same <laughs> with there's there's clips of the Stones playing with Muddy Waters at the Checkerboard Lounge in 81 when they were on their tour. They just surprise visited the Checkerboard Lounge. And whenever they would trade voices, it's like, you almost feel a little bad for Jagger. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> the only time in your entire life you almost feel bad for Mick Jagger. <laughs> exactly.
4: And yet they, they know, like they, like even Keith said, we always wanted to sound like them. And we were mm-hmm. English kids, so we sounded like ourselves. And and that's great. I love the Stones, but um, it is funny. I would definitely check that performance of Champagne and Reaper out. It's fantastic.
0: Give me a woman when I get lonely And settle right down here by my side
1: your time. No, be no long, but I, I
3: love the, the details and they, and they come back, uh, the string and a button and like rubber I band, mean, like wanting to play guitar so bad, but not having it that you're rigging up simple machines so that you can make notes out of plucking your finger on it.
2: He had never heard a radio until he was 16 years old
4: unbelievable,
2: like i was i don't the that is just like you're born to do it, you yep. know
4: mm-hmm. yep, it's just that's just in his in his
3: soul from from yeah exactly, uh and i was I was so into this part and really into it, and then I did have a moment of like oh we're we're back to the foo fighters and now we're <laughs>
2: back to the foo fighters that is i mean. <laughs> Wow, Joe, having a Christian experience. Yeah,
3: I, I mean like if, if that's the comparison, you know, going from like this uh, this cool Chicago blues stuff with Buddy Guy and then you're like, "Ah, yes, they are recording an album." I forgot. Um, great.
2: There were a few things that I think of as Chicago if you're going to do an episode about chicago i think you need to talk about the racial segregation of of our city and i don't Mm -hmm. think they hit that really much at all and i was really disappointed in that because it is a very north side south side segregated city and that has a lot to, they talked about, they just didn't hit on that. And I would have liked to have heard, especially to have heard how the blues was able to break through to white people in Chicago. They kind of like clicked on that a little bit, but I'm, and maybe what I want is like a buddy guy documentary. Maybe Mm -hmm. what I want is a Chicago blues documentary. That might be what I'm learning watching this.
3: I'm sure there's, there are those out there there's yeah. no way there aren't Chicago blues documentaries. There, there yes. have to be.
2: And then, uh, you know, obviously Chicago is where they did the disco demolition or whatever. And that's mm-hmm. a big racial, you know, that was like a racially charged event as well. And also a homophobic event and stuff. And mm-hmm. I feel like I wanted there to just be a little more acknowledgement of what the hell formed kind of the scene in our city as well as you know me I'm like Chicago house music erasure is happening (laughs) um but I always think that I'm like where's bad boy Bill's interview um (laughs) it's not happening (laughs) I think that that is like it's because this is a very white male documentary I mean it is like 95 percent men being interviewed and shown on screen and I think it was just the lens was not open in that regard because people weren't even considering that they were missing that.
4: Yeah, I wanted to see like Liz Fair and Coco Taylor and Uh there's all these great female artists that came out of Chicago, uh, many more. And uh, I would have loved to have seen them, too.
2: Yeah, and they interviewed, like, the only person who gets interviewed, like, the women, two women are shown talking in this entire film, or three, maybe, the daughters of the couple who owned Wax Tracks. But it's, Bonnie like, Ray. Bonnie Ray and then his cousin Tracy are, right. like, the two women who get... And I was like, Bonnie Ray is not, like, a Chicago person. What is this? But they had that clip from, that footage from... I actually written. I wrote down, oh, he has Chicago's own bonnie rate i was like what is going <laughs> on here but they tied her in yeah with they the were able to, stuff to connect that
4: because she was at the soundstage and that was based in chicago mm-hmm. i guess yeah yeah right.
2: and obviously she would talk to them i think that's another thing too it's mm-hmm.
4: like she she's was, gettable
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> but i'm like liz fair was probably gettable 2014 she was out trying to um i think that was when she was kind of like making a comeback a comeback
4: yeah, I mean, I'm, I still remember being in a Chicago record store when I heard Exile and Guy Bill the first time. And it was one of those rare times where I was instantly sold on something without even knowing who it was. It was Divorce Song was playing in the record store, and I was like, who is this?
0: And when I asked for a separate room, it was late at night, and we've been driving since noon. And,
4: uh... They were like, that's Liz Fair," And I was like, oh, because I had seen her in the Chicago Reader and I'd just seen an article about her. And I was like, oh, I got to get this. And to this day, it's one of my favorite albums of the 90s or or ever, really.
2: It's a great album. Yeah. And they kind of like didn't even they showed some female artists in like the Steve Albini compilation Segment, or yeah. montage, the Steve Albini montage. Like they had the Breeders in there and they had a um, yeah. few others. PJ Harvey. PJ Harvey. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was cool, but yeah, I don't know. It, it was a pretty myopic picture of what, it's like Chicago is black blues men and then white punk rock into kind of grunge rock men. And that mm-hmm. is what Chicago is.
3: To the Foo Fighters. Foo
2: Fighters, yeah. exactly. You
3: know, I, and I guess, you know, what, what do you expect really from a Foo Fighters documentary? They are going to be uh, referencing the music that was important to them. And, you know, you with the expectations for them to be like honest about segregation or, you know, <laughs> for a Foo Fighters, that's maybe a, a tall order for, you know, what they're setting out to do. Uh, I get that, though, because that's an important part. If you are saying that you're telling the story of, of Chicago and Chicago music, uh, even though this is personal, th- those things maybe should come up.
4: That's sorry, Joe. Well, real quick, I, w- I will say this for Dave Grohl, though, like I always like that he acknowledges and tips his hat to his influences very openly like like about how he came out at a Bob Mould show and Jason Narduce was playing bass at this and uh John Werster was playing there too and Grohl came out to play with Bob Mould because he said basically I wouldn't without Husker du, there wouldn't have been a Nirvana and you know there wouldn't have been without the Pixies there wouldn't have been Nirvana and he he's always at least good about acknowledging his influences but you're right this show felt like this is what was important to the Foo Fighters
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and are we going to the Steve Albini stuff now?
3: You know what? Let's uh, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will talk more about Sonic Highways and even a young man named Steve Albini. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope you really thought about that Steve Albini tease over the break and then it got you in in, a, in whatever mood you needed to be in. Uh, yeah, this so when they I, when they start going back to the Foo Fighters and then recording an album, luckily we were able to p- pull away from that because they're recording at electrical audio, the Steve Albini studio that's in Chicago, Steve Albini being a legendary producer who did most famously in utero for Nirvana, but they go through all the ones he did. He did Surfer Rosa for the Pixies and did the Breeders and PJ Harvey. I got to say, I thought it was very funny that they included uh, the Bush album that uh, (laughs) Steve Albini like recorded, which was at the time people were shocked and maybe even a little bit betrayed that Steve Albini would do A Bush album especially because they were such a Nirvana clone and then for their second album they employed Steve Albini but I think he was and I they get to it a little bit about his like principles but he's just kind of like if you want to record with me then yeah let's let's do it but they they don't
2: they they sell him as kind of a pretentious like they really they do a nice bait and switch on you with the old how you're going to feel about steve albini on Mm -hmm. uh, in this episode they they sell him they're like steve albini notorious prick he's an elitist he thinks that music is only for the people who can truly appreciate it and blah 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 blah. and then it's like but he only charges for the work that he's done and he you know he's Mm -hmm. also a gambler i mean we learn a lot about Steve Albini in this episode, but like, I think that they really set you up to be like, this guy's a dick. And then they're like, but he's actually like, really cares deeply about music. and
3: deeply principled for better or worse, I think is the deal because he, you know, he has his opinions about the way things are done. And that also includes
4: not ripping off artists monetarily which is great yeah and it's interesting too i never i've never met steve obini but i i know his wife heather winnick because she worked at second city oh um, yeah she, Yeah, she worked on the staff there and she's just a wonderful person and i was always like okay if heather married this guy and has lived with him all these years he's got to definitely have a softer side and he's got to you know be a guy with a lot of integrity because she was the coolest and nicest so um i always thought i think he's just a Bag contradictions, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. But I think I always admired, I really admired, like Dave Grohl says in the episode, if he had just taken points on In Utero, he'd be a multimillionaire, you mm-hmm. know, for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that he treated it as just a craft like plumbing, you know, you pay me for my time and then I'm done. is very admirable even though, and I don't think a lot of people would, would do that. Yeah, you know, I, 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 see, yeah. I,
2: I say that as a person who makes money every time my gum commercial shows. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I actually need that. Absolutely. Um, I don't see. I, I'm like, I'm like, you're leaving some money on the table, Mike. I mean, we all know he's leaving a lot of money on the table, but I'm like, don't struggle if you don't like. You don't have to rip people off, but you can be paid. I don't know at market I mean, rate and I'm, I'm sure figured. he
3: was I you know I think probably in Utero specifically he probably got paid a good amount of money for the session yeah but the thing is it's like kind of industry standard I from what the from the way they present it that it's you know royalties for a producer is kind of the deal
2: when they were doing the montage of the albums that he's produced I wrote down I was like but there's something about his production style that it feels very Chicago it feels like a hard walk through wind and snow and then you open the door and you gotta kick snow off your stupid boots and keep them in the hallway and then you walk in the house and you're still you're like hot from walking but <laughs> yeah. you're cold from how cold it is it's like that I feel that in the production <laughs> that's why you go to Chicago
0: yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: I I gotta say kind of during this you know Albini as as we're kind of transitioning out of Albini I was just surprised to hear anyone within the Foo Fighters let alone Taylor Hawkins say he doesn't care about the blues I was like you don't you don't say that in rock and roll like my monocle fell off uh, <laughs> and you don't
0: say
2: that in the Chicago episodes too. yeah it's right, like, right 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 it's like yeah I don't really care about the blues Chicago's cheap trick I'm under the bean I'm wearing a freaking you know north face the
3: end him being under the bean it was like you got to you know the bean was showing up at some
4: point in this episode
2: nobody ate a deep dish pizza though not a single hot dog in sight like what the hell
4: (laughs) that's true it it is interesting though that you I mean, on the one hand, he's being honest. He doesn't care about it. On the other hand, we all know that so many of his influences wouldn't have been possible without the blues. So it, you, you may not care about mm-hmm. the origin story, but you've definitely been influenced by people who are influenced by what you don't care about.
3: <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah, they show that because they're, they're like, he's just like, Chicago is like cheap trick for me. And then you get a lot of Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick being like, it's all about the blues, baby. I was just trying to... <laughs> So yeah. you, you get it like pretty immediately uh, within minutes of him saying that. Absolutely.
2: I loved learning about the early scene in the 80s. Like I loved learning about what was happening in Chicago that like Steve Albini moved there being like, all right, everybody, where's the scene? And they were like, it's nowhere. All of these metalhead kids are beating everybody up and they suck and- yeah. or,
0: yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah that, that it was twitchy because i was in school during the time where they're talking about like with naked ray Gun was around town like i was i was away at school so i, I always wish i would have seen some of those bands back in those days but i was still very sheltered and mainstream in my music until i started working in college radio and discovering a lot of that stuff but um that early on they must have had a hard time they must have gotten beat up a lot and uh you know it had stuff thrown at them and i, I admire the guts for just pursuing that in the face of all that resistance and mm-hmm. yeah
2: like wrigleyville homophobia just like rampant it you know still is and i mean yeah. you're seeing the the heyday of it
3: yeah yeah I- and the idea of and we've, we've talked about it at length already but the idea of them describing wrigleyville as like dead and it's
4: just
2: Cubs only played during the day. Oh, I guess because they didn't have the lights. That was a big thing when they installed the lights in Wrigley Field so they could play well, night games.
4: Very big deal. And I had a friend who worked at Sheffield's who was a bartender and who was an improv friend of mine. And he said
2: "Oh, Sheffield's.
4: So what he hated most was that on Cubs game days, he had to become a bouncer. And he's like mm-hmm. I just i I'm just bartending to pay for my improv classes and stuff. <laughs> he's like
0: <laughs> I, all time.
4: Put someone in a headlock, you know, he's like and uh I always loved how the ginger man would play uh classical music after cubs games just to keep the a-holes out like (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good move that's very savvy
2: oh that's so good yeah it was
4: it was really uh i always thought that was very funny and that's i always like the ginger man yeah uh so we we
3: get a little bit of the the punk stuff with with steve albini and and his band big black which they called lease breaking music which i thought was a a funny little story um but then we go back we get some in the studio with the Foo Fighters, I you know I thought this was I it was fun them like monkeying around with the plug for Chris Shiflett's guitar and trying to get the actual feedback by just kind of fucking around with with the foot pedal and the you know the actual chord going into the the hole.
2: That was fun to watch. I liked watching how much they enjoyed him just shredding. They were like, look at him go, <laughs> we yeah. did it.
3: Yeah, right, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't think of, I mean, it's just funny that like everybody is sitting around, I know you're in a professional band and like you're fine, but it does seem like getting uh, an intense amount of pressure everyone just kind of sitting there watching and Dave like sitting back and being like, maybe you should like some sort of King, like be like, maybe you should do this, Uh, do that. (laughs) It's his band. But uh, then we get back to more of the history of Chicago. Then we like rewind back, we get the chess record stuff. We get a lot of good uh, buddy guy stuff. Everybody was a motherfucker. You got the sense of like, can I swear? (laughs)
0: <laughs> he was uh, yeah afraid
3: to, but that was really I thought all, all those stories were were really great and that that's when you get to see young bonnie Raitt with buddy guy in a super fly coat yeah which that is, is super hot and he's wearing that coat yeah very very cool and then we get I clocked it Dave Grohl is at the southport brown line stop getting on a train going north <laughs> <I made sure laughs> to...
2: seems like it would be a purple line train. Cause he's headed up to Evanston.
4: <laughs>
3: right, right, right. Yeah. So he goes to see his cousin, Tracy, who had a, and, and I'm, I get the sense that one of the reasons they stopped in Chicago first for this series is that this is the beginning of Dave Grohl's musical journey as a kid because mm-hmm. his cousin Tracy was a punk and he didn't know that was coming when he was a little kid. And then he got his like first exposure to, to punk music through his cool
4: older cousin, Tracy. Yeah. That, that, I thought that was, you know, a nice that he gave her that credit for inspiring him and, and how verboten was. So uh, I'm still kind of amazed that Jason and those kids being nine and 10 years old would be playing that kind of music early on. I know I knew Jason was a big cheap trick fan and everything, but to go, to play punk music at that age is just blows my mind.
2: Well, that is some Evanston shit. You know, Evanston is, uh, for those unfamiliar. It is just north of Chicago. It is like the city that sits right on top of Chicago. It's where Northwestern is. There's a lot of wealth there. It's kind of like a liberal, wealthy enclave full of, it's like my friend teaches at the circus gym there, you know, and all the kids are encouraged to be as like, you know, she teaches all these 11 and 12 year olds with buzzed hair, dyed all sorts of colors. They're like encouraged to be, you know, as freaky as they want to be by their parents because it's like, we may be rich, but we're still cool is kind of the vibe I think that Evanston tries to cultivate. And so the fact that parents in evanston were like yeah my 10 year old's in a punk band whatever i gotta take him to a gig it feels just when they said that they opened the door and there was like a freaking fountain and all this marble i was like are they in winnetka like what where are they gonna Mm -hmm. be and then you find out they're in evanston and it just it absolutely makes sense that that is the kind of thing that can only happen if you have like supportive parents with enough money or you have complete and utter freedom. Like you, it could happen like in a beastie boys sort of way where it's like, well, we just got to do whatever the hell we wanted because we lived in a city where we could just get on the train and who cares? And no one was monitoring us, but this felt more like that, like their dad is dropping them off at the concert. Kind of like, yeah, yeah, my kid is mm-hmm. a punk rocker. It's cool.
4: Yeah. You saw a lot of that with theater kids too. Like John Cusack, you know, came from Evanston and the mm-hmm. Piven kids workshop, like, Jeremy Piven and mm-hmm. Chira Piven's married Adam McKay and you know those guys they, their parents ran workshops for a lot of kids like that and you'd see Cusack even after he became successful you'd see him with a bandana walk into the old town alehouse just and play pinball in mm-hmm. a great coat you know they still have that kind of kind of grin they romanticize a lot of the punk yep music stuff Mm -hmm. like that yeah not in a phony way but in a way where you grew up with a certain amount of privilege Mm -hmm. and and also a certain amount of freedom you know yes exactly
2: yeah Yeah, no I mean it's like an idyllic place to grow up (laughs) as far as like there's not a lot of people telling you you can't do stuff which is Mm -hmm. like a very neat thing there yeah
3: and that coupled with you know the Perception, like trying to
4: put on, like I'm from the streets. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Well, yeah, the Beastie Boys is a perfect example, but in the, in the New York world, you mm-hmm. know, the fact that King Adrox, you know, Dow is Israel Horowitz, the, the mm-hmm. playwright, you know, he grew up with a lot of freedom, but he also grew up with enough money that he with didn't...
2: a safety net, knowing that, yeah.
4: yeah. Um, what's
3: with all these punk clubs burning down in Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> I,
4: I did not know about that, but it actually. It didn't really shock me, uh, but that it was horrifying to find out that they burned so many down. I mean, I know a lot of the stuff. same stuff happened in New York, you know, with like the Mercer, the Mer- where the New York Dolls originally played. It just collapsed right. one night. <laughs> you know, a lot of, some of it probably had to do with everything being, you know, not up to code. That's That was my thought as well. Well, you probably also had people throwing flaming bottles
3: through the window to start fires too. Right. It was a a lack of decent infrastructure with the punk rock attitude of literally burn it all down. I think that that mixture (laughs) is going to result in some actual destruction.
2: I just want to give a very quick shout out to Cousin Tracy. Just as a concept, like her being her taking these boys, (laughs) boys who were. 3 or 4 years younger than her and being like you're my band let's go i'm punk rock i yeah. you know i decide or whatever and then coming back and being in this documentary and having the most chicago accent just <laughs> amazing she literally said something like oh my and we were like oh my god what's going to happen and I was like, "Oh wow, <laughs> it struck a little chord within me just hearing her." And then that she is this very Midwest mom-looking person now, and she was this freaking, you know, punk rock teen. I just love it. Cousin yeah, Tracy is the star of this documentary for me.
3: <laughs> I, I I agree. So the, and they, there's a decent segment in this episode about wax tracks, the record store. Mm-hmm. Is that a place
4: that either of you have memories of i did go to wax tracks once or twice it it was uh, i tended to go more to there was reckless records Mm -hmm. and uh b-side records which was uh, i'm sorry uh see here music which was right across the street from second city my friend dan epstein who's now a journalist and stuff uh was the clerk there and i would go in there and just talk music with him all the time and but i i wasn't a regular wax tracks or anything, but it was a very cool store. And I remember being a little intimidated when I go in there. Cause they'd have a lot of music I had never heard of. And I, it was a little like going into the high fidelity record store where you feel like you're worried you're going to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have that great quote
3: from James Murphy uh, of LCD sound system in this documentary about that experience does not exist anymore of like going and you want to, you want to buy sushi and the Banshees and you are kind of saying it under your breath. Cause you're afraid that you're going to say the wrong thing. Uh-huh. And, 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 but then they, they try to turn you on to something else, which, you know, that is, I guess Spotify uh, suggestions is, is the closest thing. To yeah. That. The algorithm, algorithm has
2: replaced us all. I never have been to wax tracks. I have heard of it. And I was really intimidated by record stores growing up. I mean, there was a big one in my town called Crow's Nest that I would go to sometimes when I was growing up. And like, you could listen to CDs like, in a little booth, like you could preview the music. And I would get very nervous going up to the counter to make my purchase. And I wanted the person behind the counter to think I was cool. And then for everything that I didn't think was cool, I would go to Best Buy for.
4: uh, There you go. (laughs) Yeah, there was a record store in Madison where I went to grad school uh, and it was called B-Side. That's why I said B-Side. And it was exactly the same kind of place where you know, to this day, I go back and it's still there. And they, I still get a little nervous going. (laughs) there.
2: I mean, it's very intimidating to go to a place where, you know, that the person behind the counter has an opinion about your purchase. Yeah. And you know, like they don't make you feel, I feel like amoeba out here. It was like, I've gone to amoeba uh, quite a few times, but I'm always like, you better... Better make the right choice, you better purchase the correct thing, and I, uh now I just don't buy music i I pay, t- <laughs> I pay ten dollars a month to, to uh, stream a eighty percent of what's available.
4: And I totally know what you mean. <laughs> I still remember when I was nine years old going to Woodfield Mall in the Chicago suburbs and asking for a single of Stairway to Heaven, and the guy goes, "Ugh kid, they don't put let zeppelin doesn't put out singles kid."
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, um, oh.
4: So I think that was rooted in the back of my brain. Every, every record store interaction I had since that, since I was nine years old, I was always like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something stupid like that again.
2: <laughs> I always wanted the boys there to like, I would be like, oh my God, I want to impress these cool, cute guys who work at the record store. You know, I'm like a teen and I'm walking in. And I'm like, what's something that they would think is cool? Probably not this ska album I'm about to buy.
4: Oh, they might think that's the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> Kevin, did you ever meet Kevin Doerr, Kristen? Um, oh,
2: no. I mean, I've met him just in passing, but we are not pals.
4: <laughs> he was he was one of my good friends in the Chicago scene and at and stuff. And he was the big ska guy I knew. Uh, he knew all those bands and we'd go to all those shows and... I was pretty clueless about a lot of that stuff, even though I I like a lot of it now, but uh, he would go to, he knew all that, that whole scene.
2: Yeah, that was kind of my niche in high school. I got really into ska music and I would see all these little bands at like the Fireside Bowl, which that bowling alley that had a little, um, it wasn't even a venue. It was like, they just played in the lounge area of the bowling alley and stuff. And there was a band called Deals Gone Bad and a band called Pharmaceutical Bandits. And those two bands were on every single bill of every single show that I saw from 1996 to 99 or whatever. That's just some hometown lore for you.
4: I wonder (laughs) if that's the same bowling alley I saw. The only time I saw Albini's band, Shellac, I saw them open for Fugazi at a bowling alley. Oh, I'm sure it was. I was probably the oldest guy there in my 20s. But it was like, it was, yeah, Shellac and Fugazi. And I remember Ian McKay was always so such an impressive guy to me too uh in terms of just keeping ticket prices around five
0: dollars
4: you know? yeah. we got two very principled
3: guys on that bill uh yeah. leading their bands to the detriment of their own bank accounts so they have principles and that's that's what matters
2: it's definitely there that you saw them because we would go there because it was all ages shows they would let you do that's another thing that you don't think about as much anymore as you soon as you hit the age, (laughs) Uh, you stop thinking about how important all ages shows are to like Mm -hmm. people as like a gateway and stuff and because yeah, what a freaking bummer you can't see your favorite band because it's 21 plus and you're 15 and you like them more than anybody 21. who's yeah. over 21 because you have nothing but time to like a band
0: yeah. <laughs> that's your
2: whole life that's your personality it's your defining <laughs> characteristic is that you like this band
4: well there was an all-ages club medusa's in wrigleyville where it was a they called it a juice bar because they served soft drinks right. and, uh, but they would have all-ages shows all the time i never went to see a show there but i would see punks hanging out there all the time teenage punks you know Mm -hmm. and
2: that's like the part that i thought was so cool about this thing was they were like oh so we were happy because the cubby bear would let us do an all ages show we were like trying to bring up the we were trying to basically cultivate a fan base by being like who who's young and likes it loud here we go Mm -hmm. come on in yeah
3: it doesn't get to necessarily see this type of thing that often
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Exactly. It's a good
3: thing. Smart move. Back to the documentary. We get a little bit of Rick Nielsen in the studio. And I got to say, anytime I see footage of Rick Nielsen with a five neck guitar, I'm like, this guy was great. Yeah, <laughs> this, this was just a, a really, really funny and talented guy. And I thought it was sweet that he, he said he was nervous to play on the, on the Foo Fighters.
2: And album. another guy who started basically as a child, like every single mm-hmm. person that w- like many of the people that were featured in this episode, it was like, he, they showed a picture of him as like a five-year-old with a cowboy hat and a little guitar. They were mm-hmm. like, that's how long he's been playing guitar. Yeah. I yeah.
4: Had no idea He started so young. I, per- I forgot about that.
3: Yeah. And then we, we get more buddy guy. We get kind of the, the culmination of buddy guys career. We get rock hall footage. We get him being inducted. They don't say that's what it is, but when they're talking about how like, you know, he's one of the last living legends, they show him at his induction playing with Eric Clapton and B.B. King. And then you see the Kennedy Center Honors where Morgan Freeman, of all people, is, is uh, you know, I wouldn't say inducting him because that's not what the Kennedy Center Honors is, but, you know, given a speech, which is cool. And then I got to say, this kind of, this made me laugh. And this was uh, connecting it back to the very first moments of the documentary. We get Dave Grohl the pen and the blank page.
4: <laughs> I, I, I,
2: It was really,
3: but I, I have to say, I was the premise. I thought the premise of this album, let alone the documentary was going to be pretty loose. I was really surprised how much of what buddy guy was saying was directly lifted and put into the lyrics of this song.
2: Yeah, I'm like, give him a songwriting credit on this song.
3: <laughs> well, what I kind of thought was, why isn't Buddy Guy playing on this song? Good yeah. question. Because it's, it's Rick Nielsen who plays on, on the song, uh, Something From Nothing. And it is about Buddy Guy. I'm curious if they asked Buddy. From
2: gut Buddy Guy's perspective. Like, the yeah. song is written as though Buddy Guy is telling it.
3: Very true. Many, many lyrics, you know, button on a string, came for a dime and got a quarter, uh, can't make me change my name, which he repeats. It's all, it's all the stuff Buddy Guy was talking oh, about. Also,
2: I want to say how, in, to me, I, I wrote a note about this. They were like, Buddy Guy, that's not a stage name. And I was like, I can't believe that's your real name. <laughs> They're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, you need to change your name to Buddy King. What? That sounds more like a regular, Buddy Guy sounds like a, a stage name.
3: Yes, yeah, it does. It's one of those names that sounds like it's either a blues guy or a vaudeville performer.
4: Did either of you go to his club, Legends? Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I was. We were there when it opened up, and James Brown performed, and it was amazing. And oh, uh, wow! The only th- one of the unfortunate things, though, as I remember, on the main floor, for some reason. Bill Maher was just sloppily making out with some women on, right <laughs> by the stage, and I'm like, "Come on, man, get the hell, get the hell out of here!" I was like, first okay. of all, what are you doing here? And then, second of all, I was like, "It was just gross." And Not
2: uh, a shock.
4: No, yeah. it wasn't a shock, but it was it was very <laughs> gross, and and it was kind of taking. It couldn't ruin the show because it was too good, but it was uh, it almost did.
2: <laughs> yeah, pulling focus with your sloppy makeout at Buddy Ugh. Guy's Legends while James Brown is performing.
4: Ugh it was oh. it was a criminal offense for sure. Oh, absolutely
2: not good. <laughs> no, no. Also I want to touch upon the LCD sound system, James Murphy, Steve Albini, just giving away his tricks for free.
3: That was really cool.
2: That was really
3: a great story. I loved hearing that. The fact that James Murphy, uh, as a kid, reached out to Steve Albini, was like, how do you record stuff? I want to record stuff. And that Steve Albini responded with detailed diagrams, drawings, instructions of basically how to build your own studio, which is such a generous... uh, yeah. And it's like you said, Kristen, like they, it starts off Steve Albini's a prick, but then you, you learn these things where you're just like, oh no, he's a, he can actually be, he seems like he has opinions and wants to do things his way, but like, he's a very generous man mm-hmm. uh, on a lot of levels.
2: And this is where I got to give it up for Grohl as a director, because he took us on a journey with Albini. You know, he could have just laid it all out at the top, and he he took us on a journey and kind of changed our minds as we watched it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's a skillful turn to take, especially, you know, and then they do the thing where they're like, Steve used to not be able to say that he loved anything, <laughs> and now he can <laughs> love. I
0: mean.
3: <laughs> that is very funny. Uh, did you guys see? They do a shot of the Chicago theater. They're showing like a lot. Of, they show the Aragon, and they, they show mm-hmm. you know a lot of the the big venues. The good in men. Chicago. Yeah. Did you see who's on the marquee at the Chicago theater? Either of you? No, I missed it.
2: Wait a minute. Please no, don't not think It was the
3: Improv <laughs> Olympic 25th anniversary.
2: Oh please, yeah, was it wasn't the debacle. <laughs>
3: on on the marquee at the Chicago theater, when they get a shot of it, is Joe Rogan. Oh boy, <laughs> what? <laughs> Which I thought was very funny. That's that's the shot wow. you
2: get. Oh wow! Did he have a podcast back then? 2014? I don't know. Maybe he
3: might have, but like it was not the thing fledgling. that it is now. It's yeah, you know, there's a little time capsule. Yeah, he
2: it. couldn't even get a protein powder to sponsor him back then.
4: <laughs> but he could do the Chicago theater, so he was close. I don't know him personally, but I had a friend who was had been on uh, Jeopardy, and Joe Rogan was going to be going on Celebrity Jeopardy, and this friend of mine said, "Hey, you know, if you want to." I, I've actually done the show, and uh, you know, if you want to, and he was a comedian too. Who knew him? And he goes, uh, and this guy I knew had won five times and stuff, and had done really well. And he goes, you know, I, if you want any tips about like how it is, you know, with the buzzer and stuff, and Rogan goes, oh, you're going to help me? You're going to help me?
2: Oh my god!
4: And I was like, I and so That was the first story I ever heard about Rogan, and I was like, oh fuck this guy <laughs> <laughs> you know i was just like i'm done i don't need to hear anything else yeah, you want to help me
2: on jeopardy debate me bro <laughs> yeah, exactly. like oh he's
4: trying to help he's just being a nice guy and yeah uh, was it andy richter it was not but andy did andy did really on- well on
3: celebrity jeopardy i just remember
4: that Andy smoked Wolf Blitzer and Brian Dennehy on, uh, Jeopardy. he said <laughs> wow. Dennehy, he
2: oh said my Dennehy gosh. was
4: really mad.
2: Well, <laughs> Dennehy is Chicago royalty.
4: He is. He's a, he was in all the Steppenwolf shows. It was like death of a salesman and everything. And yeah. A yeah. great, great actor. But Andy said, you know, Andy was just out. Andy knows a little bit about everything and I'm not surprised he kicked butt on Jeopardy, but, uh, he said Dennehy was really mad. Wolf Blitzer <laughs> was fine. He was like, Oh, Well well done, Andy, or whatever. Oh my gosh. I guess Danny, he was like, you son of a bitch. I Uh,
3: love that. So we end this episode, as they do, I believe, every Sonic Highways episode, with this song, Something From Nothing. Do we like this song?
4: (laughs) I'm sorry, Kristen, you go ahead.
2: No, I mean, I am predisposed to not like new Foo Fighters music. I think that I come at it maybe with a bit of a, um, uh, you know, I, they're at a deficit. You know, you gotta prove it to me that I should like this song. I don't think it's terrible. It's just such a toast song. Like it didn't do much for me. I think that Dave Grohl has really good handwriting. And I
3: was
2: (laughs) was like, this block lettering, wow. Honestly, the Sharpie (laughs) on the paper, beautiful. Yeah, and I, you know, the, to put oneself in Buddy Guy's shoes and then write a song as Buddy Guy moving from... (laughs) Uh, the sound, you you know what yeah. I mean? It just it it doesn't connect for me personally. I think it's a it was it's a risk and button on a string. It it was stole I think it's valor. He stole valor exactly. <laughs> I, I think I just I didn't. I don't care if I ever hear that song again. By the end of the episode, I was like, how many more minutes are left of this song? Because I feel like there's probably not going to be much after this. I liked the guitar part that I had seen them do. I liked that I knew some things that were coming. I was like, they said there's a funky part. Oh, here's the (laughs) funky part. Like, oh, this is when that one guy shreds. Cool. There's I couldn't hear the plugging in part that they had spent so much time on.
3: That gets a little bit lost. Uh, Also, there's like a a kind of the main riff or like they go into a riff. That to me, sounds like a rip off of this Dio song, Holy Diver.
2: Yes, I literally was thinking to myself, this sounds like a Guitar Hero, um, mm-hmm. like loading menu. Like, I think a lot of <laughs> the sound effects in this show as well kind of had very much like that Guitar Hero sound effects loading menu feel to it for me. So I don't know. I, if I never hear it again, I will not care. If I heard it in a Coles, I wouldn't pay attention.
4: <laughs> I think that was my reaction was I, to be honest, I don't really remember the song. Uh, yeah. I've, I like a couple of Foo Fighters songs like Everlong and Big Me. And I think they're mm-hmm. good at what they do, but I've never really listened to a lot of their music. And this song seemed very competently well-played, but, I don't really remember the song at all, to be honest.
3: Yeah, and the, you know, given the how much they discussed punk in this episode, I, it was a surprisingly soft tone to it. Even though there's parts of it that rock, none of it feels punk at all to me.
2: I mean, he's definitely screaming by the end though. That mm-hmm. felt quite okay, punk yeah. to me. Maybe like, just I, the way
3: it started, I was like-
2: It's very it soft like start, yeah. We had
3: we had talked so much about punk and then he comes in with with his- uh, this soft little, uh, little song of
2: his. Like a minute and a half of buildup. And then they're like, we're really gonna let it loose. And then it kind of is like, it just felt like a very bog standard rock song. It was interesting in some ways to hear them talk about how different it is to record the songs for this album Mm -hmm. versus the songs for the normal recording procedure. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting thing. However, I think that it doesn't serve the music ultimately. Yeah. Yeah it seems more like the gimmick is what we're getting and not necessarily like, because normally from what I have learned in watching the copious amounts of music documentaries I have now watched uh, in the past couple of years, but like normally you go into the studio, you write and record a ton of songs that don't get used. Some things mm-hmm. get thrown away. And it's like you are making it so that you absolutely must turn in a product. And then this product has to be used ad infinitum. Like this album, this song is going on the album, it's going in the show. Yes. You I shot like,
3: an entire hour long documentary about the making of this song. You can't afford to not put it on the album. Good point. And I'm
2: like, maybe do a couple songs in chicago maybe try yeah, a couple great. of ones mm-hmm. then you edit it down to what's what and then ding ding dong
4: yeah <laughs> we
2: we got an episode
4: did you two see sound city the yes the documentary? yeah i thought that was interesting too just I how that know. board had a kind of magic to it but anyway just it, it that- was a it was i, I want to say it's what made Dave
3: Grohl want to do this. It was he had directed a documentary about the Sound City recording studio in Los Angeles where they recorded Nevermind, but where they also recorded Rumors and they recorded a lot of uh, classic albums. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's like them going, going to Sound City and tracing the history while also recording stuff. He records with Paul McCartney there. He like kind of reunites Nirvana with Paul McCartney for that song that they did eight years ago. Uh, it's I like Sound City, uh, and ultimately, I think I like Sonic Highways, and I would maybe watch a few more episodes.
2: I also want to give a shout out to saying the title. I just want to give a <laughs> shout out to Dave Grohl for saying the title of the show. He worked it in there at the end. He's like, and as we travel down these Sonic Highways, I was like, you did it. You did it. You said... Uh, I, I'm not afraid to, to just pin a rose right on my nose.
4: Yeah. (laughs) That reminds me of SCTV when they did their towering Inferno parody and Eugene Levy goes, it's a towering Inferno. (laughs) Like he just actually said. Yeah.
2: It's like when you're, yeah. When you're reading a book and you're like, oh, the title of the book.
4: There it is. That's where the title comes from.
2: The sound and the fury. I see like, you know, or whatever.
4: (laughs) You're the godfather part two. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <And the> godfather. <laughs> oh Lord. Well, that's that's
3: you know what? That's it for I think our review of Sonic Highways. And Kristen, I'm happy to finally tell you that is going to be it for Fo oh. Lai. Food Lai is done.
2: Our long national nightmare has ended. I mean, there it's like five weeks. You I I hated yeah. it. I because I started out. Thinking that the Foo Fighters were just fine. I was, don't think they should get in the first year eligible, but whatever. It's the music industry hall of fame. And I ended being like, I think Dave Grohl kind of is a, he's just so up his own butt. He really, (laughs) he really takes himself quite seriously, which is fine, but I didn't need to know. I would have been happier not knowing. And
4: now you do, and that's the magic of Foo <laughs> I hope someday that the bands, some of the bands like Husker Du that influenced them so much, get in themselves. You know, I don't. I know you can't take the hall super seriously, and there's going to be great bands that don't get in. But you know, the fact that a lot of the bands that are in couldn't have existed without the bands that aren't in is kind of weird. <laughs> well,
3: yeah, th- that's that's like did-
4: the main issue with one of. I mean, yeah,
3: it's the main issue I think with the Foo Fighters induction this year that people get upset. And when people hear us get upset and are like, but the Foo Fighters are great, whatever they, you know, have uh, had a long and consistent career of keeping rock alive. That all is true. Mm -hmm. But you know what it comes down to is the fact that like Motorhead and Devo and and the replacements and uh, the Pixies and like all these bands that clearly influenced them uh, have not even really been, many of them have not even been nominated. So the, the Pixies aren't in.
4: No. Oh my God. That's yeah. genuinely. Where got
2: is you. their mind? You know? Where <laughs> is the hall's mind? That's the big question. I also just think, you know, I think I'd rather do hoosker do lie than mm. foo mm. lie. So, mm. you know.
4: You I'll be, come back and just listen to you talk about <laughs> do lie. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely
3: have you back if there is ever a hoosker do lie. <laughs> I'd be honored. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Brian, for for being on the show. Uh, I'm glad we could do this. Uh, anything you'd like to plug your social media, maybe?
4: Oh, uh, th- thanks for asking. Not pretend, but I, I, I mean, I'm on Twitter. If anybody wants to say hi, um, but uh, but thanks. I had a great time talking about this. It, it's it was really fun. So thanks for having me. Absolutely, uh, we had a great
3: time. Perfect to have a, a true Chicagoan. Uh, for for this particular one.
2: Absolute treat. I love to talk about Chicago. (laughs) Everyone who listens to the show knows that.
4: They know it well. Great to meet you, Kristen. And great to meet you in Chicago. And I know you both have a lot of history in Chicago too. So this is a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you.
4: And uh, our listeners know they can follow
3: us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Rockhallpod at gmail.com is the email. If you want Kristen to see that, you need to designate that somewhere in your message. Otherwise, she doesn't want to see it, and I'm not gonna forward it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts rate and review us five stars only. A review less than five stars is rude and you don't wanna do that to us. Even <laughs> if you genuinely think we're a solid four, you should give us you should give us a five. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Yusu Kim for the music. Thank you to Pantheon Podcasts for hosting us. I'm Joe Quazala.
2: I'm Kristen Studdard.
3: And who cares
2: about the Rock Hall?